this morning we begin a four-week series on, um, on courtship and dating. Uh, we're going to be walking through Genesis chapter 24. It is absolutely stunning um, the amount of principles on courtship and dating that are found in this one chapter. In fact, there's about 12 to 15 principles, God-ordained principles, um, that are huge as it relates to this idea of courtship and dating. Now, let me deal with the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is many of you are going, well, uh, Pastor, why don't you look around? And you can tell that this room is probably 90% married folks. So why in the world would you spend time talking about courtship and dating? Well, I could talk a while about that, don't have long, um, but one of the things that I'm passionate about, one of the items on my to-do list when I first came here is uh, wherever I pastor, I want to be sure that this church um, is transitioned into what's being called an equipping church. We exist here to give ministry away, to give you what you need to walk with Jesus Christ in all the spheres of your influence and the various seasons of your life. So this is not the Pastor Brian LaRich so, uh, show where the high point is, come here a man. Instead, it's come get what you need to represent Jesus Christ out in the bay. Now, with that said, you need to also understand this. The main reason why I'm doing this series is if you've been keeping up with the Department of Labor and Statistics, uh, a couple of years ago, they unleashed a breathtaking uh, survey. And the results of that survey was, among many other things, that for the first time in America's history, a couple of years ago, the United States, among its adult population, became majority single for the first time in its history. Give that to you again. Department of Labor and Statistics, a couple years ago, their findings said this. For the first time in our history as a country, the adult population, the adult demographic is majority single. So if you want to be relevant as a church, you better figure out a way to reach and have a word to people who are in that demographic. Now, what's true of the culture at large, the country at large, is exponentially more true for us here in the Bay. I want to put this graphic up. Let's look at this side, uh, but I want to put this graphic up, and here you see the 10 large metro areas with the highest ratios of employed, keywords, employed, employed single young men to single young women. Now, if you'll notice, um, two of those are right here in the bay. San Francisco, Oakland, Hayward is right in the middle. At the top of the list is San Jose. By the way, do you know the nickname for San Jose? Man Jose. That's hilarious to me. Did not know San Jose is affectionately referred to as Man Jose. Now, why is it called Man Jose? This graphic tells us it has the highest ratio. San Jose is number one in the country. I'm going to be preaching this message all over the country, getting people to come to the Bay, right? There's going to be this influx of single young women moving into Man Jose, I mean San Jose. Um, but the reason for it is this ratio says for every 100 um, employed, employed men between the ages of 25 to 35 in San Jose, there's actually, excuse me, uh, young women, there's actually 114 men, so the ratio is higher there. Say all that to say, you know, our big vision here at, uh, at Abundant Life is, is we want to reach the bay for Jesus Christ. And what these statistics tell us, there's no way we're going to be effective in reaching the bay unless we have a word for singles. So we've got to talk about this stuff. Now, here's what I also want you to do. I think my boys are sitting up in the balcony. Um, here's what I want you to also consider. Parents, if you're like me, uh, I've got three single men in my household who ain't employed. 
we, we working on it. We working on it. If there wasn't these child labor laws, they'd be flipping French fries, burning up their hands in hot oil somewhere. But anyways, I've got three single men in my, in my house. And so what, what I want you to do is kind of what I'm doing as I'm just going through this, this, um, this study with you. If you're a parent with singles living in your house, um, you need to be taking notes going, how can I help to shape, disciple, form them in what is a crucial area of their development, okay? Now, I understand that to say that not everybody's called into marriage, but especially as parents, we have been called to disciple our kids, and that discipleship must be comprehensive. The punchline of this series is, um, is not to get you ready for marriage. The punchline of this series is to help give you the tools to discern who you should be giving your heart to. That's what this series is about. So I want us to walk through it. I wanted Sky to read this chapter to you in in some. We're going to be hanging out here for the next couple of weeks. This is the only time I wanted the whole chapter read. This is, by the way, you just sat through the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's interesting to me that the longest chapter in the book of Genesis is not given to creation, The longest chapter in the book of Genesis, it's not given to chronicle where sin came from, but the longest chapter, what God speaks a lot about is courtship and dating. He has a lot to say about it. As our text opens up, uh, we're only going to be in the first four verses today. Um, If time permits, I'm going to give you four uh, incredible paradigm-shifting principles about courtship and dating. If you've got kids, your kids need to know this. If you're single, you need to know this. But as our text opens up, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And in a lot of ways, Abraham is kind of the protagonist of much of, especially the opening chapters of the book of uh, of Genesis. Uh, Here is Abraham. God shows up to Abraham one day in in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, I've got a call on your life. I'm going to bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. Through you, Abraham, all the, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to be the father of my covenant people. Today, we would call them the Jews. Uh, Abraham's like, man, that's a good word, God. Uh, definitely believe it, but you know me and my wife have been battling infertility issues. How in the world is that going to happen? God says, here's how it's going to happen. You're going to have to trust me. I'm going to open up her womb, and I'm going to bless you. Now, parenthetically, Abraham refuses to wait on God, does things his own way, and uh, he decides to circumvent God's directions for his life, uh, takes his handmaiden at his wife's uh, suggestion, and they then have a child named Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people, and a part of the progeny of some of these Arabs, I'm not saying not everybody in the Arab group is, but some of these who are part of this family have actually been uh, people who have wreaked a lot of havoc throughout world history. This was actually prophesied about in the Bible when God says it'll be Ishmael's seed who will be a wild donkey. So we are still reaping the effects of one man's refusal to wait on God and do things God's way. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. So here's what I want you to understand. Man, that was tweetable. But here's what I want you to understand here. So here's Abraham. God opens up the womb. In their 90s, Isaac is brought into the world. His name means laughter. Part of that is they just thought it was hilarious. 90-something-year-old woman giving birth. But a part of what scholars say is behind the laughter is they they are laughing at just a good, benevolent God. God has blown their minds. Now when we come to Genesis 24, Sarah has died. Abraham now makes up his mind to say, my son needs a wife. 
By the way, nothing in, this, in the text suggests that Isaac is beating down Abraham's door saying, I, I want a wife, I want a wife, I want a wife, I want a wife. In fact, nowhere in the whole story, which reads like a novella, does Isaac even talk. When we see Isaac, what is he doing? He's meditating in the field. He's spending time with God. So that Isaac is the picture of contentment. The next thing we see is when we meet Rebecca, uh, Rebecca is just going about her life's uh, affairs. She's serving. She's hanging out at the well. She ain't huddled up with her girlfriends, rolling her neck, talking about how you can't find a good man. She ain't saying, girl, let me tell you what's wrong with these men out there. No, she's just serving. She's showing up, doing what she's doing. She's faithful to God. This is principle number one. The first principle that we see, it's more of a principle that's implied, but it is the principle of contentment. The principle of contentment. What our singles need to understand is that they've got to be first satisfied in God. This is huge, absolutely huge. There's two conflicting things, at least I felt in my season of singleness. One is I felt a desire to be married. The Bible actually says that's a good thing. Bible says in Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The idea of finds is the idea of looking. We'll talk about that some in just a few moments. But what drives the looking? What drives the looking is the desire. I have a desire. And nothing's wrong with desire. But, but dating, which is a good thing, becomes a sinful thing when we make it an ultimate thing. Ooh, I'm talking too fast today. Dating, which is a good thing, becomes a sinful thing when we make it an ultimate thing. That's when dating becomes sinful. The tension is when desire spills over into obsession. When, When I build and base my identity on whether or not I'm at home by myself or out in the streets on Friday night. That, 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 that where it becomes a problem, here it is, is when I start looking for other people and relationships to fill in the gaps in my heart that only God is meant to fulfill. It was Blaise Pascal, the great 17th century French mathematician and philosopher, who says, hear it now, that all of us have a God-sized hole in our hearts that only God can fill. Hey, listen, even when you get married... Your spouse is not your savior. I, I need you to get that. My spouse is, if, if I make Corey my savior and she dies before me, what am I going to do when I look at my savior in the casket? She's not your savior. In fact, your spouse is not given to you to complete you. Stop saying that. Your spouse is given to compliment, not to complete. Your spouse was never wired to bear the crushing weight of deity. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to learn to be content. And a part of what that means is we're going to have to be satisfied making our way through seasons of aloneness. I lived in L.A. for years, and one of the first things I was surprised to hear, uh, I met some people whose job, um, I was surprised to hear that award shows Uh, Most of the times, award shows aren't sold out. They're not packed out. There's a lot of empty seats in award shows. I actually had some friends of mine who were trying to break into uh, into Hollywood, and their job, low-level job, was to grab people to fill those empty seats. 
The producers didn't like the optics of it. They didn't like what empty seats looked like. So my friends, their job were to find people, random people, and to get them to fill those seats. It wasn't that they cared about the person. They cared more about the seat, and they just grabbed any old body to fill the seat. That's part of the problem with some of our singles. Some of our singles, they're not comfortable in sitting in their aloneness, and so they drift from relationship to relationship. It's what I call the empty seat syndrome. You know this person isn't supposed to be a part of your future. You know that person doesn't have the character, the attributes, but you are so uncomfortable with your aloneness, you grab any old body to serve as your surrogate savior to try to fulfill the gaps in your life that only God was intended to fulfill. And when that happens, when we drift from contentment into obsession, now the stage is set for poor choices. One of the most um, breathtaking books I've read on this subject, how many, how many of us have read the book Boundaries or heard of the book Boundaries by Dr. Uh, Townsend and Dr. Cloud? They've actually uh, written a wonderful book called Boundaries and Dating. They've got one passage in here that's worth the price of uh, gold. Look, look at what they said on that screen. Um, here's what they say. Your aloneness makes you get involved in relationships that you know are not going to last. It also keeps you from being alone long enough to grow into a person who does not have to be in a relationship in order to be happy. To be happy in a relationship and to pick the kind of relationship that is going to be the kind you desire, you must be able to be happy without one. Lord have mercy. If you must be dating or married in order to be happy, you are dependent and you will never be happy with whatever person you find. Unbelievable. So there's just gotta be this, you know what? When I first met my wife, one of the most sexy things about her was she just kinda had this air of, I'm good by myself. That's sexy. (laughs) Clingy is not. Dependent is not. So what, 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 what makes Isaac so appealing, what makes Rebecca so appealing, they're not on this frantic thing. They're just out serving. They're just out being who God called them to be. They're just out walking with God. They are absolutely content. Next principle. There's some cultural disconnects in our passage, and I'll I'll readily own this. Um, This passage is more about courtship than what we would call the American version of dating. Um, In Abraham's day, in Isaac's day, you married to date. In our day, you date to marry. Those are two drastically different paradigms. In fact, what's going on here is is that uh, uh, Abraham, at his own initiative, is setting up an arranged marriage. Now, I don't know about you, but praise God, we don't roll like that in America anymore. Because my mom, who's a discerning person, the few times she's tried to set me up, mm -mm. mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. You know, mom had real discernment as it relates to character, but those other dimensions she wasn't really discerning on. And let me just stop right there before I say something I should not say, okay? But I'm just saying I'm so thankful I didn't have to wait on mama and daddy to set me up, all right? So there's some real cultural disconnects here. But there is a principle that we can extract, and that is what gets the ball rolling here is not Rebecca or her side of the family. What gets the ball rolling here is we see a man taking initiative. 
That's the second principle. There's contentment, and then there is godly male initiative. Now, ladies, uh, in the beginning, I don't expect much amens from here, uh, but just fasten your seatbelts, and um, you're, you'll, you'll agree with me either here or when we get to heaven, you'll see that I was right. Here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about leadership, let me give you a thumbnail definition of leadership. It's the best definition of leadership I've ever, I've ever heard of. I, I tell this to my boys all the time. Leadership is simply taking initiative for the benefit of others. Leadership is simply taking initiative for the benefit of others. Leadership is not reactive, it is proactive. For example, my kids aren't you know, worrying about their college funds. They ain't even thinking about college. They can't get past the Oreos in the pantry. That's all they're thinking about, all right? I'm the one thinking about their college as well I should. I'm the one going, how can I set some money aside on a consistent basis to make sure that college gets covered? That's just what a leader does. I am thinking, I'm taking initiative for their benefit. That's what it's about. Now, men, you may not like this. We're not a culture that, that, um, that tries to beat up men. We want to build men, but here's the ugly truth. The ugly truth is one of the bad things that Adam has handed down to every single man after him, save Jesus Christ, is that the natural gravitational pull of our own hearts and lives is not towards initiative, but down away from initiative into passivity. We are naturally, as men, passive people. How do I know this? You go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that here is uh, uh, Satan talking to Adam's wife Eve. He gets her to eat of the fruit for the longest time. I didn't think Adam was on the scene. I thought he was away at work. But the Bible then says these little words, and Eve turned and gave to her husband who was with her. Ain't that something? This man is watching a snake talk to his wife, and he doesn't even say anything. Passive. Say that with me. Passive. It is the gravitational pull of men's hearts. We are passive, 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 passive people. And we've got to counteract this, and we've got to fight this. It is so much a part of our culture. Anybody ever seen the movie Failure to Launch? Movie Failure to Launch gets on this cultural ep epidemic of passive men. It deals with a 30-something-year-old man living in his mama's house, sitting on his parents' sofa, playing video games all day, no plan, no sense of get up and go to him, no sense of proactiveness to him. This is an epidemic in the church. I see this all the time in the church. Here's how you make failure to launch passive individuals who are 30-something-year-old men sitting in their Star Wars jammies at 2 o'clock in the afternoon playing Call of Duty in their mama and daddy's house, no sense of get up and go, no sense of wanting to get an education, none of that. We're just sitting, watch this, and, and the parents are accomplices to the crime. Sit, 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 and they're tweeting, and it's strong stuff. They, they, they have all the answers to what's going on in the White House. They just can't get a job or finish their degree. I know you ain't got to say Amen. I, I brought my own amen with me. Amen, pastor. Preach, pastor. That's right, pastor. That's okay. That's okay. I met with a young man one time who wanted to debate with me about the five points of Calvinism. He wanted to get into the superlapsarian controversy versus the infralapsarian controversy. He wanted to get my thoughts on limited atonement versus universal atonement. So 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he's sitting in my office wanting to debate with me. I finally looked at my watch about 2.25. I says, why aren't you at work? He says, well, I'm not, I'm not really working right now. So you're looking for a job? Uh, not really. Where are you living? With your mama? I says, look, 
in the conversation. I ain't talking with, to you about fine points of theology and having these discussions and you ain't looking for a job. Check off first things first boxes, get a job, then we can come back and talk about John Calvin and Martin Luther. Passive, 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 passive men. What women want in the deepest parts of their souls, they want to be led by a humble servant, proactive leader. That's what they want. They don't want a dictator. Some of you guys may be going, but you just don't understand. You just understand these women, the feminist movement, they're not really going for that. I'm, I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to tell you, don't believe the hype. That's what they want. And I'm not just talking about saved women. I'm talking about unsaved women. For many women, they've never even seen it. I've never met a woman who says, you know what? I want to be a man. I want to be with a man who's really passive, that every time we go out, the check comes and he stares at it for like 20 seconds, wondering who's going to pay. And I end up paying. I just want to be with someone like that. I want to be with someone who hasn't, you know, finished school or doesn't have a plan for their life. I want to be uh, with, with a man who's ranked in the top 100 worldwide of Call of Duty video. I want to be with someone like that. I've, I just haven't met that person. I just haven't met that person. Look, when, when I first saw my wife, it was a January day, 1998, in the middle of worship. I'll talk some more about that in just a few moments. I look out. I think we're singing as the deer pants for the water and there she is. Hair was all up. Smelling good. I could smell her from the stage. White Spanish shirt on. Black trousers. I said, Lord, have mercy. What did I do? I didn't stalk her on Facebook. Well, we didn't have that back in the day. I stepped to her. I opened up my mouth. I don't quite remember what I said, but I said something. Had a couple conversations with her. I then got up the courage to ask her for her phone number. I took initiative, asked her for her phone number face to face. I didn't hit her up with direct message over Twitter. I didn't text her. I didn't, you know, do it through social media. I face to face asked her, Sister Loritz, can I get an amen? I asked her. Now I broke the rule. You're supposed to wait at least 48 hours. You know, because you don't want to come across as too excited. I was excited. A couple hours later, I left her a message on her answer machine, not her voicemail, on her answering machine. Took initiative. I asked her out. I knew where we were going. I had the plan. Took her out to this restaurant. I was a grad student. Poe. Not poor. I couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was Poe. And I'm sitting there going, please don't order from that side of the menu. And she was saying, you shouldn't have took me here if everything wasn't fair game. But I took initiative. 18 years later, we are together. Why? Because I took initiative. My wife will tell you, uh, yes, he was Poe. He was broke. I had a little Nissan Sentra uh, that uh, if you were in traffic, the car just cut off on you. I had a little hoopty, a little bucket, okay? But she would say, the reason why I'm with him is, uh, the reason why I said yes to him, the reason why I married him, it's not because he had money, didn't have money, but he had movement. I knew he was going somewhere, okay? So that's what I want you to understand, initiative. Take initiative, and a part of what that means is before I take initiative with someone else, take initiative over yourself. 
What's my life plan? Where am I going? Where am I headed? Initiative, initiative. See, see what we're getting into now is dating and, and courtship ain't for kids. It's for grown folk. It takes a level of maturity. You can't be an emotional adolescent. You know, you know what an adolescent is? You know what sociologists, sociologists define as an adolescent? It's a person who wants the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Preach, pastor. Preach, preach, preach. It's a person who wants the privileges without the responsibilities. That's why you can always tell an emotional adolescent they want to shack up without getting married. I want the privileges of a committed relationship. Uh, it's quiet up in here. Without the responsibilities. Okay? I want the milk just without the cow. Now, I ain't going to go no further than that. All right? Let's get to the third thing. Here's Abraham, takes initiative, and he gives instructions to his servant. I want you to look at what he says to his servant in verse 3. He says, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. He gives specific instructions. He's not to go to the Canaanites. Come back to that in just a few moments. Send him... His wife needs to come from my kindred. Now, biologically speaking, that's the part where we say that's gross. It's gross. Why does he say, go to my kindred, go to my family to find the wife? Here's why he says that. Abraham knows that his family is a part of the covenant people of God. So when Abraham says, you need to find a person not from the Canaanites, you need to find someone from my kindred, he says, I want you to find a woman from the covenant people of God. She needs to be a godly woman. You hear me? She needs to be a God. Now, now watch this. He goes, but I'm just not expecting her to be godly. I can say, you go find this godly woman for my kindred because I've been raising a godly man. In other words, I am not projecting on her expectations that my son isn't fulfilling in his own life. This is a major principle to dating, and we can park here all series, and that is Successful dating means that I've got to become the one I'm looking for is looking for. Preach, pastor. Successful dating means I've got to become the one I'm looking for is looking for. The problem with most singles in dating relationships is we spend more time on looking than on becoming. So here's what Abraham says, yeah, we can look for a godly woman because he has been becoming a godly man. I just want a woman out there to match the man he is in here. That's what I'm looking for here. So that, I mean, it's a principle of life. We, we do this across the spectrum. Um, we do this in the realm of ath athletics. A, a basketball player does not look for the right team without first becoming the right player that the right team will look for. You don't apply to the right college without first becoming the right student that the right college is looking for. You don't fill out an application to work for a company without first becoming the kind of employee that that company will look for. It is a principle of life. Becoming is to take precedence over looking. 
Say it another way, you heard me say it in the video if you were here last week, guys, some of these guys just kill me with these expectations. Sometimes, you know, listen to guys talk about what they're looking for. I'm like, bro, have you looked in the mirror lately? I don't say that because that's not really pastoral. And one of the things I hate about my job, you can't say everything you're thinking. So what you say is, Ooh, let's, let's pray by faith for that. We're going to pray a big prayer, big prayer. Okay. But that's, that's the major problem. You, know, you, you get these guys who, who want this perfect 10 supermodel who writes Bethmore Bible studies, but you are sick still on your mama's sofa looking at porn all day. Preach, pastor. Preach. Preach. Those two things don't go together. See, see if I want a godly woman, I got to be a godly man. If I want a woman who's going to follow me, I got to be a kind of man worth following. So that becoming has to be the emphasis, not just looking. Final principle. Let's go home on this one. I love what Abraham says here. Abraham says, verse 3, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not, you will not, you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Instead, he says, I want you to go to my kindred. Uh, go to my kindred. Here's the final principle. Go to the right place. Go to the right place. Now, let's have a pastoral moment. Over my years of pastoring, I've had so many people come to me and say something to the effect of, you know, I'm just worried about the church becoming a meat market. People shouldn't find their spouses at church. I get what they're saying. What they're saying is your primary motivation for coming to church, the house of God, should be on the worship of God. I understand that. But you also need to know I'm green lighting you as pastor. That if in the middle of your worship... <laughs> Hallelujah. Mm. Mm. I'd much rather you do that here than at the club. To the left, to the left. Yes. I mean, you, that's Canaanites out there, all right? So, you know, keep it, you know, on the river. That's how it was with Corey. As the deer panted for the water. Oh, Lord, have mercy. So, again, we, I know there's a lot of humor involved in that. We've we got to make sure our motives are right. But come on now. You, you, God don't want you to be blind in the house of the Lord. You could be missing a blessing that he's got for you. So Abraham is, is clear. I want you to take them to the, take, go to the right place. Now, here's where I really want to hang out on the right place. Some of you may be here and you may go, um, man, I'm new to the faith, new to the Bible. Or maybe you might go, I'm not a person of faith. This sounds racist. This sounds racist. God says, do not take someone from the Canaanites. What's up with that? Let me cut to the point. The point here is not racial, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. I want you to look at these scriptures with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is God speaking. He's referring to the Canaanites, and he says this, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for here it is, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. 
Or listen to what God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 11.2. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. God is not anti-interracial marriage. By the way, one of the most popular interracial couples in the Bible is Moses and his wife Zipporah. Zipporah is a Cushite. You know what a Cushite is? She's Ethiopian. Now, last time I checked, I failed geography. Last time I checked, Ethiopia is in Africa, which means Moses Charlton Heston married a black woman. God then gets ticked off in Numbers 12 when when Moses' brother and sister starts talking bad about the black woman. He says, oh, you like being white. He makes them leprous. So this is, God is not anti-interracial dating. He's not anti. What he's concerned about has nothing to do with ethnicity or race. It is concerned about spiritual. That's why the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be one? So when my boys come home, one of my sons, God bless him, he says, Dad, the honey's all up on me. I said, really? He says, you know why that is, don't you, Dad? I said, why? He goes, because I'm a honey bun. That's exactly what he said to me. I said, oh, well, we, gotta, we got some work to do. We got some work. We got some work to do. So even my sons, well, the thing I'm in their ear about is, okay, she might be fine. She might be all that. But top of the, uh, top of the list ain't fineness. Now, we're we going to get to that next week because the text did say she was, she was fine, all right? She was attractive. We're going to talk about that next week, all right? But top of the list is, don't bring no Canaanites up in here. Oh, I can change them. I've heard that. Marriage is like buying a used car, as is. All sales are final. You ain't changing nothing. God's having a hard enough time changing you, and he's God. As is. You with me on that? So Abraham said, don't bring no Canaanites up in here. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't need, I don't need her. So several years ago, uh, living in L.A., I was in a small group, man. This is a great discipleship group, and one of the guys came in, and uh, we knew he was dating this girl. And he goes, man, I think, I think we're going to marry her. And we was like, bro, that ain't a good look for you. And he, go, he goes, what, 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 what are you talking about? He goes, man, I know she's gorgeous. And I know she comes to church. But she don't love God. Parenthesis. Canaanites do come to church. So just because they are in the house of God doesn't mean they love God. Preach, pastor. Preach, preach, preach. This girl, she had Canaanite tattooed on her arm, and all of us could see it. Now, in the words of Kanye West, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, uh, but here, here she is. I'm going to leave it at that. Here she is. You could just tell. God bless her. God bless her. She wasn't the one. He didn't listen to us. He ends up marrying her, has a baby with her. About a year later, we're sitting in group. He goes, man, I think she's cheating on me. He hires a detective. Detective affirms what he was feeling. She was cheating on him with an athlete. That athlete moved her out the house. 
Uh, she ended up marrying him, divorced him like 10 years later, this athlete, made a whole bunch of money. And uh, my wife and I just did lunch with him a little over a year ago. He's still in an emotional and spiritual tailspin 20 years later. Him and God ain't right. Him and life ain't, him and life ain't right. Why? Because he messed up and gave his heart to a Canaanite when he knew better. How many people knew better, but because they married a Canaanite, they had to file for bankruptcy? They're visiting their kids on the weekend? The emotional turmoil that's happening? All because you could change him. You could change him. Listen to me. You got to have discernment here. You got to see some things here. There are three members of the Trinity, and you ain't one of them. You can't change them. Some of you are thinking, well, if I can just get them to the wedding. Look, the only thing weddings change are bank accounts. <laughs> weddings don't change people. Putting lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. <laughs> Putting a tuxedo on a caveman, it's still a caveman. Let me crash land here. Some of you are going, well, all right, give me exactly what I should be looking for. Come back next week. Come back next week. I'm going to walk you through exactly what you need to be looking for and what you need to be teaching your kids and grandkids, what they should be. There's a lot of heartache that we can save ourselves, but this is the, the most important human relationship we could ever have it has to do in this area of courtship and marriage. We can't miss it here. We can't miss it here. And God is speaking to us. There's about 15, 12 to 15 principles right here in this text that if we would just follow them, we'll see God do some unbelievable stuff. Um, do y'all receive this word today? I want Cormac and the team to come on up. Listen, listen, as, as, we, as we prepare to leave, listen to me. You do know God married a Canaanite, don't you? It's called you. It's called me. We were all Canaanites. Now, wait a minute. I thought you just told me we can't marry Canaanite. That's right. So why can God marry Canaanite? Because God can do something you can't do. He can change people. God specializes in changing Canaanites into covenant followers of him. God is the only one who has permission to do that. And right now, we want to just give a call for anyone who's here today, and you might be going, Pastor, I just got to confess, I don't have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know him for myself. You may have religion, but I'm not offering religion to you. I'm offering relationship to you. In fact, the truth of the matter is, I won't know good relationships that way to the degree in which God wants me to know them until this relationship is where it should be. So today, we just want to offer a call for anyone who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, I've shared this with you before, but I met my wife six weeks after she got saved. My wife had moved to New York to L.A. at a time in which she was pretty low in life. And one of her first nights in L.A., She's at a party, and at the party, this one friend invites her to church, but tells her, listen, I want you to come to church with me. My wife is about 22, 23 at the time. And, and, and my wife says, I'd love to go to church with you, but this friend said, okay, um, 
but I got to rush out right after service. I got a meeting to go to. My wife says, no, no problem. I'll, I'll, I just want to come. And so my wife comes. I believe they're sitting in the overflow. And in the overflow, she hears the word of God preached. And at the end of the message, the pastor, like I'm doing now, opens up the altar. And someone who wants to get saved. And my wife just felt pricked in her heart that that's me. But she remembered that her friend had to leave right away. And so she waits and she doesn't go and she doesn't go and she doesn't go. And finally, the pastor just says, you know, I, I know that we've got people who've come to the altar, but I just got this nagging sense that there's one more person who needs to come. My wife broke down in tears and she looked at her friend and she said, I know you have to hurry up and go somewhere, but God's talking to me. I need to go. And my friend says, there's nothing that important. And she waited on my wife as she walked down to the altar. And that day in her early 20s, my wife gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ. And God took her and God has done a profound work of changing her. And it's that same God that wants to do a work in your life today. I'm going to pray. And after I get finished praying, I want to invite you to enter into a relationship that will change your life, a relationship with a God who loves you. Father, in the name of Jesus, your word has been preached today. Your word is stunning. It is astounding. You have amazing things to say to us across a wide spectrum of topics. And you care, Lord God, about, about singles and courtship and dating. And yet, Lord God, while you don't want us dating, Canaanites, Father, I thank you that you, you dated and you married me, a Canaanite. And you're changing me more and more into your image. I bless you for that. Now, Lord God, may no one leave here without saying yes to you. May no one leave here, Father God, without entering into a, a relationship with you, Lord God. God, would you do it in the name of Jesus? It is in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Not going to linger long. But the altar is open. If you feel compelled to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, would you come? The altar is open.